You're listening to the Physio Matters podcast, this month in association with exerciseprescriber.com, and this is session 56. Welcome back to Physio Matters. I'm still Jack Chu, but panic not. I'm not. I'm not on this episode much, so you'll be pleased to hear lots of different voices, especially a new one, which I'll come to in a second. Thanks so much to all of the you that downloaded and gave us feedback for the last episode with Eric Mira on hip pathology, uh, young hip pathology, femoroacetabular impingement, hugely controversial area. I think we navigated it fairly well. It was great to chat to Eric ahead of our conference that he's coming over all the way from. I'm trying to think now. Is it Denver? I think. He's coming from Portland. I don't know if they're even close, actually. But um, somewhere far, far away over in the States. And he's coming over in October to the conference, which will be great. And one of the, the program is out today. Uh, so if you're, his, if you're listening to this fresh, fresh from the press, then you will be seeing the conference program. Full two days is going to be out across social media today. So I might as well just give you a bit of a clue as to what that is in full whistle through it so that's 5th and 6th of october in manchester england and we've got a massive lineup of guests we've really tried to mix up the format so we've got keynotes but also panel discussions that follow those on the same topic try and draw the audience into a big q a in physio matters style there's also opportunities for us to ask our famously pertinent questions of the speakers at the time to really lead us into the Q&A rather than the damp squib sort of any questions and someone's got a half question on a detail. We don't want any of that at our show. So 5th and 6th of October in Manchester, be there and uh, hopefully this will whet your appetite. So let me just go through the programme. On day one, you've got a little welcome from me, um, which you only have to put up with for 15 minutes or so, followed by the first keynote, which is with Eric Mira, who I've just mentioned. He's going to be talking on reforming our relationship with exercise, talking through public health, biomechanics, that sort of stuff, as well as anything that we do where we influence and introduce exercise as a variable. I want to talk about that in detail. And then he sits down with Anne Gates of Exercise Works fame and Physio Matters fame, of course, and Brad Neal, also been on the show, a PhD candidate at St. Mary's University and a vocal um, advocate of exercise as rehabilitation, especially for patellofemoral pain. So they're going to be sitting down and discussing exercise in all forms and drawing the audience in. We've then got Keynote from Joletta Belton uh, coming over. She's going to be talking about reforming patient engagement, uh, talking about the, the patient's take on the matter, and sitting down with Pete Moore from Pain Toolkit, as well as Adrian McGregor, who was on Physio Matters a few episodes back, hugely popular episode, talking through his story and how we need to do better for people with persistent pain, but especially getting it right first time to stop people spiraling downwards into that. At lunchtime, uh, there is a break. Grab some food and if you want to, and only if you want to, you can then go into the working lunches, which is um, two of the focus groups each day from the Big R's project, talking about clinical variation under analysis, and then also outcome data sharing on day one. It's going to be talked about by our clinical excellence focus group and the reforming influence focus group, so much to come uh, from those. Now, there's then an agitation session after lunch, which is by Roy Lilly, who's a policy analyst and and famous noisemaker online, uh, who's going to be talking about what do we want, what we're trying to get at, what is it that physiotherapy and MSK practice really needs to do to pull its socks up. Uh, That should be really interesting. We break out into them workshops, which is improving physio education with Joost van Rieten. 
Progress in Primary Care Practice with Paula Deacon, and then Reforming Research with Brad Neal, all at the same time, inside rooms, doing some more practical sort of format stuff, really interesting, uh, varied formats from them, having spoken to them about their plans. We have a break. And then at the end of the day, on day one, we've got our day one debate, which is reforming orthopedic triage. Who is best placed to assess patients referred to orthopedics? And that's going to be with an orthopedic surgeon, Rich Collins, who's an MSK physician, Emma Salt, who's a secondary care APP, and Steve Nawar, who is a primary care consultant for Connect Health. And they're going to be discussing who's best suited. And there's a there's crisp distinctions between each of their positions on that. So it's going to be really interesting. There's not necessarily two sides. There's almost four sides. And they're going to hash that out. And that will be moderated by me or my team, uh, which I'm really looking forward to. Into day two, then first keynote of the day, Joe Gibson is talking about applying the biopsychosocial model and then sits amongst Eric Mira and Liz Prokopowicz, which I'm sure I've mispronounced, I always get the name wrong, uh, but both of those, uh, well, all three of those vocal advocates of biopsychosocial model, but also putting it under analysis and critique as to how we best apply it, one of the big conundrums of our time when it comes to reasoning. It'll be really good to hear Jo uh, speak about that, especially because she's usually all tied, on, ch- tied into her specialism of shoulders and unstable shoulders, which she's had her on the podcast for, but she's uh, really polymathic in that, in that sense, and so she'll be, uh, she'll be, it'll be great to hear her talk on something a little bit broader. Followed by the keynote by Neil Langridge, the place for manual therapy in contemporary MSK practice. Now, Neil was on Physio Matters last year, and it's the first episode, our only episode, to ever breach 50,000 downloads for an episode. I think it's on 52 now, so hugely popular topic, and he's a real voice of reason in that space. And so we're going to then sit him in there for the place for manual therapy in contemporary MSK practice. It then goes into a panel with famed manual therapy skeptic or critic Adam Meekins and Carly Gibson, who's a contributor to the Big R's project and a really sensible voice in this space. A physio matters supporter for many years and someone that every time we we hear her comment and feedback on things it's always been extremely sharp and we want to give her a platform to sort of try to uh, wade in on that topic which is a very important one then the working lunches for day two reforming education focus group and the reforming clinical governance focus group talking about what we mean by education and then consistency in clinical governance so really important topics again for you to join in with if you want get involved with but if you're not, if you don't fancy that, then just get yourself some grub and you can network away. We then have an agitation session by my friend Martin Ongwen, known as Kenyan Physio on social media. He's from Nairobi, Kenya, and he's going to come and say, "What might you inspire?" A message from Africa, talking about uh, the ways in which the noises that get made on the internet and the things that try to all the all the policy details that we wade into, how they influence things in the developing world. So really looking forward to hearing that. I think it's going to be a really interesting angle. We then break out into workshops once more, a practical understanding of pain with Anina Schmid, advancing advanced practice with Heather Watson, and then in the spotlight, improving perceptions of MSK practice with Naomi McVeigh and friends. We're, we're just yet to detail exactly how that, that one's going to be constructed, but it's going to be really about how MSK is perceived by interprofessionally, intraprofessionally, and also then into the wider media. I think that's going to be a really interesting one. I'm spoke for choice for where to split myself 
uh, for those three sessions. The final break then leads us into our final keynote, which is with Anina Schmid, maximizing your sciatica outcomes, some of the most difficult patients and difficult scenarios, difficult stories to treat. And so we want to make sure that we get the, the hot, hot off the press evidence and analysis from Nina. Uh, really looking forward to that. She sits then in a panel to close with Ash James, again, of Physiomatous fame. I keep saying that, don't I? But we spoke for guests here. And then Joletta Belton is going to give the patient's angle on those topics. I'll then wrap things up. Uh, with a few cheesy puns to finish and then you'll be out of the door by five o'clock find out more www.reform.physio forward slash conference you don't want to miss out and you certainly don't want to miss out on the party on the friday night got some great bands and entertainment there great food uh, in the in the actual venue of the museum of science and industry which is just going to be amazing uh, so really looking forward to putting in a show for you there so do sign up reform.physio forward slash conference really looking forward to it tickets still available for that although we expect a big surge this week you'll hear us making more and more noise about it in the coming weeks and we've got a new page up at reform.physio with all the speaker bios and it fully unpacking the program um, for your delights but that's enough for that and into today's episode but before i introduce um I need to introduce the guest. I need to introduce our interviewer. And Felicity Thau is a member, a valuable member of the podcast team and a, a long-time friend of mine. And it's been absolutely awesome to, to work with Flip on Physio Matters uh, stuff for the last couple of years. But this is her first time behind the microphone um, and she makes it sound so easy uh, because she's got such a brilliant, inquisitive mind. She's you know, I just It was the easiest thing to coach, really, because I just needed her to go on, on air and be her and ask the questions that emerged as she thought about them, because she's a great thinker, great physiotherapist. Do check her out if you want to... If any physio needs up in the northeast, then check out FT Physio, which is her private practice. She's doing some phenomenal work, and so it's awesome to have her on the, on the show. Now, this interview is on a topic that I know I knew very little about, and so... Um, it was such an educational process for me to listen to. Most of them are when I've not been on the episode, but this one's just something that's really blown my mind. So I hope you enjoy it. It's with Jason Silvernail discussing all things sleep and health and pain and all sorts of other things. He's a physio over in America who is uh, it's just great to get him on the show, especially on something so specific as well. But I'm sure we've got more to hear from, from, from Jason. So check out his stuff as he directs you at the end of the episode. But firstly, thank you so much to Flick. Thank you so much to Jason. And I pass you over to Flick, who does the brief intros for this episode. So I'll see you at the other side. Hi, I'm Felicity from the podcast team. And in April, I was lucky enough to be invited to Oslo to live tweet on behalf of the podcast at the Pain Cloud Conference. And it was testament to the quality of the speakers that we actually ended up the number two trend in Norway for a few hours on Twitter, which I will keep bringing up. Included in that lineup talking about sleep was Jason Silvernail, a physiotherapist or physical therapist and researcher from the United States with a background in the American military. I'm thrilled to be talking to Jason today and to be making my Physio Matters podcast debut on the topic of sleep. Jason, greetings from the UK. Would you like to introduce yourself? Hey, Felicity. Thanks. Uh, thanks so much for inviting me on. It's really great to talk to you today. So uh, my name is Jason Silvernail. I, you know, I'm over here in the United States. I've been a physical therapist for 21 years. Oh my gosh, it sounds a long time. That <laughs> makes me sound old. I might actually be getting there. So um, I've got a you know wide range of background in terms of things that I've done in PT. Um, and we can talk a little bit about how I came to sleep a little bit uh, while longer. 
Uh, most of the time that I've been a PT over here in the States, uh, I've been in the United States military and I'm a commissioned officer in the U.S. Army. And so part of that whole thing is I kind of got to give you my disclaimer here. So uh, I'm on the podcast as Dr. Silvernail, not Colonel Silvernail. So everything that I say here today is my personal opinion and commentary and does not reflect the official policy or position of the Department of Defense, the Defense Health Agency, the United States Army or the United States government. So we're just here talking to me and I'm hoping to talk to people a little bit about sleep and why I think it's important and a little bit about some of the physiological uh, things that are important about sleep and how we can apply that in clinical practice. Fab, no, sounds brilliant. Um, and obviously we met at Pain Cloud where you were, were delivering a, a lecture on sleep. And I wondered what got you into this topic. It's, a, it's not a, a common one, I think, not a common topic that physios talk about. Yeah, and I think... Um, um, I, more's the pity, I guess, as you could say. Uh, so I think that I'm, I'm on something of a mission to help people, uh, especially in physical therapy and in rehabilitation, understand a little bit more about uh, what we can do to coach and help patients with lifestyle medicine ideas, lifestyle medicine concepts, and help them be more healthy, generally speaking, and help uh, um, clinicians understand the connections of being more healthy in terms of lifestyle and how that affects the condition that they're there for uh, in physical therapy. Now, it so happens that I was uh, selected to be a member of a team uh, in the U.S. Army talking about ways that as an army we can help soldiers and family members be more healthy. So instead of kind of taking it from a medical care side, talk about what, what can we do to help people help develop a culture in the army extended that helps people understand what healthy behaviors are and how to do them. And so that was called the performance triad. So the, tri the three parts of the triad are sleep, activity or exercise, and nutrition. So as a result of that, I ended up traveling all over the U.S., uh, and, uh, you know, overseas as well, where we have uh, Army folks, talking to them about what they can do to improve their sleep activity, nutrition, and how that's connected to their overall health, how that's connected to their stress management and their physical performance and their ability to do their job and their ability to take care of their families and all of those things. And so as a result, I spent many, many hours and many, many days teaching people face-to-face -face in small group settings these ideas and helping them coach each other and, and giving them tools to help them coach others. And so that's really one of the things that uh, you spend enough time doing that and you look enough at the science because we had to look a lot of the science of these things, of sleep, of nutrition, of activity and exercise. And I think it really changes your perspective about what's important to, to cover in the clinic. And it helps us see parts of the scientific uh, database background that we all that we all should share that we're not aware of part of the, the scientific literature that can make huge impacts on our patients and maybe we should do a better job of leveraging it. Mm -hmm. Have you worked just entirely in the in the military delivering that kind of advice or have you worked more in the civilian population as well? Uh, I've worked a little bit in the civilian population with um, uh, with giving talks and lectures and stuff, but uh, I spent the I spent a very brief part of my career early on uh, before I came into the uh, military as a, as a PT in the civilian world, a physi physiotherapist, I guess you would say. And um, so it, it's been almost all the time I've been, you know, in, you know, in uniform in the military. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so right. that's the that's the system I'm most comfortable in. And so I, I've really found that over time, as I added some of these lifestyle coaching, behavioral medicine coaching concepts to my practice, uh, it's really changed and helped my patients and helped the, helped the numbers of people I could help. And it, it has improved the, um, the ways in which I can help people. And I think that's really what we're, what we're all there to do in the clinic, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. So it sounds like it's certainly some, some advice we can take to 
your everyday members of the public as well. Certainly sort of yeah, ways so. to be had. Yeah. I hope so. I mean, I think that's the big piece. I mean, we can't, I mean, just as, just as we want people to know, uh, important ideas in the lay, in the lay public idea about medicine, like, Hey, you know, maybe that herniated disc on your MRI, maybe it's not such a big deal, right? We want to, we want them to know that, but I think we also want them to know some very basic things about sleep. I mean, we, we spend about a third of our life asleep and most of us know almost nothing about it, right? Yeah. And, that's just not a recipe for success. Right? Yeah, yep, yep. But pick it up from that. You're right. We probably don't. Well, we certainly we're not being taught that in in physio school. Um, can you give us a a bit of a, a a brief on the physiology of sleep, probably for beginners? Yeah, of course. So when I when I talk about this, I, I I say let's let's zoom out big picture and let's think like what what is sleep and what kind of physiological and cognitive things does it do for us? So I think there's a couple things to to talk about here. So number one, we we understand a lot about sleep, but there's still a lot of it that is really a mystery to scientists and researchers about exactly what happens metabolically, exactly what happens cognitively, exactly what what its evolutionary purpose is and, and how that impacts uh, what we should or should not do or say about it and how we should help people with it. So th while we do know a lot of things, and I'm on a mission to help people understand a lot of things about sleep, there's also a lot we don't understand. And I think when you hear that, you should say, my gosh, that, that sounds a lot about back, like back pain, doesn't it? We yeah. know a lot about it yeah. and we don't do a good job of applying what we know, but we also need to admit there's a lot we don't know yet, right? Yeah. And so I don't think in that sense, sleep medicine or sleep science is any different than musculoskeletal medicine or or whatever area you work in as a medical provider uh we know we, we know a lot of things we don't apply those things well and also there's much we we have yet to learn um so that's kind of the the, the beginning part of it i would say first of all you can use sleep as a, as a concept of recharging so um Almost everybody's got a smartphone these days, right? Yep. So you know, at the end of the day, or after a lot of use, your phone drains down. Your, your the power in, in your battery will drain down, and it has to do somewhat with the time of day, right? Especially if you're out at work or whatever. But it also has to do with how much you use your phone, mm -hmm. right? And so a big sleeping is like plugging your phone in at night or plugging your phone in during the day. It helps to recharge and restore some of the power ability that your body has lost. One of the things it does is it helps build and repair tissue, right? So it, it improves the blood supply and flow to tissues that are healing or injured to help support their uh, healing process. It also improves the, the metabolic um, uh, flow or regulation of waste products versus building products in the body as, as we sleep. Uh, and it also does a lot of important things for us cognitively in terms of memory, uh, emotion, and sort of just like housekeeping for the brain. You know, um, if you think about your muscles and you think about the blood supply to your muscles, there's a lot of blood in muscles. Where's, where's the blood vessels in the brain? There, there, there aren't really many, are there? And so the question then is, my gosh, um, how do we remove waste products from meta the metabolic activities in the brain. Normally that's done through the blood supply, right? We're, we're the lymph, right? In, in the body. How does that happen in the brain? Well, it turns out when we sleep, the brain naturally swells and contracts and it improves the flow of the cerebrospinal fluid, which helps push out some of those metabolic waste products and helps it uh, bring in uh, new products as well. So one of the things that you might have heard about when it comes to things like Alzheimer's disease is this protein called beta amyloid. Mm -hmm. And that can build up in the brain and people who've got 
uh, Alzheimer's disease and different kinds of cognitive dementia issues sometimes have buildups of these beta amyloid. A big part of sleep is the swelling of the brain and the flushing out of those products and the flushing of proteins like beta amyloid, which might contribute to problems down the line. So that's an example of how the brain uh, also has a metabolic process that sleep supports and sleep supports uh, a healthy uh, cognitive process and it helps the brain's metabolism as well as the body's metabolism. So during sleep, so it's like big picture purpose stuff. Mm. So while we're asleep, we've got critical changes in heart rate, blood pressure, and blood flow, right? So your heart rate goes tends to go down at the beginning of sleep, your blood pressure goes down, there's a neurological paralysis of your muscles so that you're not moving around a whole lot during sleep. It helps clear tissue wastes, it helps repair and, and break down some of those body tissues and you also see a natural fluctuation of your body temperature. So when it comes to uh, sleep on the cognitive side, we talked a little bit about the met metabolic waste clearing in the brain just mm -hmm. now, but it's also a critical part of consolidating memories. So if you can think about your computer, you've got the big hard drive in your computer, and then you've got the little flash drive that you plug into your USB port, right? Yeah. So your daily memory goes on the flash drive. Your job, your brain's job is to get that on the hard drive for long-term memory. And the place where those memories are consolidated from short-term to long-term, a lot of that happens during sleep. We, we tend to call it the daily download, right? You're downloading what happened during your day and you're putting more of it on the hard drive, right? And so that's just a big picture process view of how, how um, sleep is consolidated and, and how that and how that happens metabolically and cognitively. So it's like a you know one over the world big picture view of uh, what happens during uh, sleep, and we'll go over uh, some more details a little bit later. Sure, sure. So both physical and mental benefits there, as you describe, and and also by the sounds of it, still being discovered. Yes, absolutely. I mean, there's there's a lot we. The, there's been an explosion in sleep science. There's been an explosion in the data and knowledge that we have about sleep and in the connections between sleep and health problems. But there is so much more to do to help us understand exactly what's going on and uh, the ways in which we can better help people get better sleep and how we can improve um, not only what we, how we approach sleep in the clinic, but how we can improve the messages that we need to help in, in the lay press and in the in regular folks outside of medicine to help them understand uh, the importance of sleep as well. Sure, sure. And and in terms of the detail of uh, REM sleep, rapid eye movement sleep yeah. and non-REM non sleep, um, could you tell us a little bit about the differences between the two and when you might expect to, yeah. to be in either, um, in either type of sleep at different times of night? Great. That's great. Let's talk about the sleep cycles. That's really mm. what we're talking about. So yeah. the, the sleep cycle. So your body goes through a, a series of cycles when it's asleep. Each cycle is about 90 minutes. Uh, obviously, that's not, not exactly 90 minutes, and it varies a little bit from person to person, but it's about a 90-minute cycle. And you go through three stages of sleep, and you, and you also hit REM sleep in most cases during these cycles. So stage one is just sort of a light sleep just past wakefulness. So if you've ever had this feeling where you've gone to bed, and then shortly thereafter, something has woken you up and you wake up and you're, you're kind of awake more or less right away. Mm. That's probably stage one sleep for you. Stage two is moderately deep sleep. And so when we say deep sleep, what happens during deep sleep? Your heart rate goes down. Your blood pressure goes down. Um, you, you, get, you start to get the natural um, paralysis neurologically of, of your muscles. Your brain does that to, to keep you from moving around too much. Those sorts of things happen during the deeper sleep stages. And so that's what happens during stage two. So that the largest percentage of all the time you spend sleeping during the night is spent in stage two, right? Then you get after stage two, 
this is going to be a surprise, but it's stage three, right? <laughs> so stage three is deep restorative sleep. This is the place where your metabolism is at its absolute slowest and where the natural clearing of the metabolic waste in the brain, for example, uh, is happening the most often, right? That's stage three sleep. Then, then, then as that cycle comes around, we hit REM sleep. Now, REM sleep is actually light sleep. REM sleep is not deep sleep, right? It is a light kind of sleep where you have rapid eye movements, REM, right, which is why we call it REM sleep. It's an increase in your heart rate, an increase in your breathing. There may be an increase in, of dreams at this, at this time, although uh, when and why dreams happen and that kind of stuff is definitely an area that we don't fully understand. And since it's not all that relevant for, for health. I don't tend to go into too much of that, you know, uh, especially talking too much about that, uh, about dreams and definitely not dream analysis. Oh my gosh. That's you're, for some, you're not having that dream, dream captures in the stop. clinic. No, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Uh, so those are the four stages. You've got stage one, two, and three, and then you've got REM sleep. And so that's a cycle. So stage one is light. Stage two is a little bit deeper. Stage three is very deep. And then as you come back toward wakefulness, you hit REM sleep, and then you come back to stage one. So each of those – that's a sort of a circular stage. Each of those is about 90 minutes, and during that time, you get all those different changes. So two and three are your progressively deeper sleeps, and REM sleep at the end is a, a lighter sleep where your body is more metabolically active. You're breathing, your eye movements, all those sort of things, and then you circle back into, into stage one. So that's sort of the, um, the sleep – the sleep uh, stage physiology. So a couple things. One of the things that people will often ask, they say, hey, you know, sometimes I wake up like three or four o'clock in the morning and I'm like really hot and sweaty. Why is that? Mm. Well, I'm not 100% sure. We, we really won't know unless we put you in a sleep lab for a while. But generally speaking, I want you to think about that sleep cycle. Where are the times when the body's metabolism is higher? That's at REM sleep. And that REM sleep happens at particular predictable cycles. So if you're noticing it happen, tends to happen at the same time of night, it's likely that you're coming out of REM sleep during that time. And maybe we can talk about ways to make your sleep better. And we'll talk a little bit about some of those tips a little bit later on, right? Because that, that really raises your body's overall core temperature when your heart rate and blood pressure increase. Uh, and that's a normal feature of REM sleep. Does that mean it's, it's almost quite normal to expect a little bit of um, break in your, in your sleep in the night in between yeah. those cycles? Yeah, absolutely. You, you can sometimes expect to wake up at some parts of the night naturally. And you can look around and go, well, why am I awake right now? Did I hear something in the house? Well, that may be true. Uh, you know, maybe it's my cat running around back and forth or crawling <laughs> over top of me, right? But also maybe it's just a natural part of your sleep cycle. Maybe you're in between sleep cycles. Yeah. And, we, and that's actually a pretty useful idea because as we help people, as we help coach people for better sleep, one of the things we can talk about is ways in which we can help them plan their night and do kind of a backwards planning mm -hmm. time-wise to say, okay, if each sleep cycle is about 90 minutes, if I'm going to wake up here about what time do I want to go to sleep here in order to make sure that I can wake up during a time in my sleep cycle when I'm more awake. And everybody's had that feeling where they, somebody has woken them up or their alarm has gone off and they just feel like they are in deep sleep, right? Yeah. That's They're being woken up during stage three. And when you're woken up during stage three sleep, it takes a long time to get your brain on board. We call that sleep inertia. Mm -hmm. So overcoming that sleep inertia can be a challenge if you're if you're woken up during stage three. Your kind of your plan is to be right around stage one or at the end of REM. Absolutely makes sense. Makes sense. Um, the Fitbit app says that, and I'm I'm wondering if this is too sim too simplistic, but it says that the deep sleep is for physical refreshment, and your lighter sleep is more for for mental refreshment. Is there any truth in that? Yeah, I don't think it's so black and white mm. side to side. I would say that um, – so 
sleep trackers like that uh, probably are measuring your body's movements, right? So it's really the only, it's got a little accelerometer in there that, that measures back and forth. So that's why you can count your steps, right? Yeah. So whether it's that brand or some other brand name, right? So in the sleep lab, you're hooked up to a wide variety of metabolic uh, uh, mark, markers, right? You, up to an EEG in your brain and the whole thing, right? So a little um, a little fitness tracker company doesn't have access to any of that stuff, but they can pay attention to how much you move. So if you move less, right, when you move less, that's that's more stage three, you know, stage two type sleep. And if you move more, that's more stage one and REM. Mm -hmm. And so they they're taking all that data from their accelerometer. I'm sure they have some sort of algorithm where they're trying to help you understand what your what your sleep quality is like. I think it's probably valuable sort of big picture so you can get a sense of overall how much time are you sleeping, how much time are you moving, how much time do you spend in deeper sleep. So I think that is probably valuable information for people. But I don't want to science it too much because it's kind of limited in, in what it can tell us. Yeah, fair enough. Um, I was just if it tells you how much time when you go to bed and how much time you spend in bed and how much time you spend moving, I would say for most people that is probably extremely useful information mm, to have. To, to track and to monitor. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we talked a bit about the benefits um, within that uh, and leading on from the benefits of sleep into why it might be useful for us to consider as physios. I've kind of got a vice versa question in that. Is there evidence that pain can affect, so pain in particular can affect these benefits? And then what about the impact of reduced sleep on pain? Yeah, that's a great question. One of the things that we talk the, the, the most about, or we should be talking the most about in, in rehabilitation and physical therapy is, is the bi-directional relationship between sleep and pain. So as sleep goes up, pain goes down. As pain goes up, sleep goes down, mm. right? So you can see it as a teeter-totter. I don't know, if that, is that a word in the UK? Um, yeah, well, yeah, okay. yeah. Right, okay. Good. So, <laughs> so it's not kind of like a, a teeter-totter back and forth. There's definitely a bi-directional relationship. And there, and so some of the references that, that you can pull up on the show notes, and so my mm. presentation included a lot of them, uh, both large systematic reviews and smaller trials that talk about the connection between sleep and pain. And so people who have musculoskeletal pain do not sleep well. People who do not sleep well have musculoskeletal pain. Am I telling you that if you don't sleep well, you'll get musculoskeletal problems? Not really. It's not that simple. So these are big picture correlation things. So in addition to those big picture correlations between sleep and pain, and there's also plenty of strong correlations between sleep and cardiovascular disease, stroke, heart attack, these kind of things too, uh, high blood pressure, obesity, I mean, it, it, the, full, the full range. Um, there's also evidence in some smaller trials that when we engage people on sleep behaviors and we help them change their sleep behaviors, they can change their sleep behaviors with coaching and that those sleep behaviors tend to improve alongside their clinical condition, especially for pain. Right? Okay. So pain outcomes so, improve as well. Absolutely. Mm. So I want you, I want us to think about this now before you throw out all your tools and say, okay, I'm only going to talk about sleep, right? So that's not what we want to do. I mean, so let's, let's think back about over the last 10 years or so, there's been a big emphasis on helping to coach people to better understand pain, right? So whether that's explained pain or, or pain coaching or whatever that came out for a while. And some people grabbed onto that pretty tight and they said, you know what? All I have to do is explain things to people. It's a little bit of an extreme view, right? I can throw away all my, all my therapy tools. I can throw away any idea about treating the tissue or exercise. I can throw all that stuff away, and I just need to counsel people about why they hurt. And then, you know, great, they'll be wonderful. That's a little bit of an extreme view of that science, right? True, and I yeah. think that as the science comes out, we're finding that that's not really the case. 
each one of these is one key piece of a puzzle. You can't put a puzzle together with just one piece, right? So while it's important to engage people who, who've got chronic pain and pain issues with sleep in most cases, it's also important to talk about exercise and stress and explain uh, the physiology of pain to some degree. All of those things are all pieces of a puzzle. So I'm suggesting that sleep needs to be one piece of the puzzle that we look at and it's not a, uh, a magic bullet or, or, or magic cure for pain or for any other uh, health problem. Sure. Um, and do they use, so in terms of the outcome measures for pain, what kind of reliable stuff do they use there? Is it, is it purely um, kind of objective um, lab-based stuff or other subjective questionnaires that, that we could use as well? Yeah, good question. So I, I would say that um, some of the systematic reviews that I cited during my presentation, when you look at those, they tend to focus on self-reported outcome measures, you know, and there's also a sleep assessment. There's actually a sleep assessment in physical therapy that people can use and that I've linked to in my presentation that you can see in the show notes as well. So you can have some questionnaire to help talk people through this, and then you can get a sense of the kinds of things that can improve the self-reported outcomes as well. And so sometimes I do wonder when I'm sat across from a patient asking them about pain and they, they might say that their low back pain wakes them up. But And actually you're saying it's perhaps not as not as kind of cyclical as I have pain and therefore it wakes me up and therefore my sleep is, is affected. It, it actually can, can be that they are somebody who whose sleep might have been poor beforehand. We certainly get a lot of those patients. Yep. They say, is your back waking you up? And they say, do you know what? I'm a terrible sleeper anyway. That's, that's, that's hugely mm. common. Um, yeah. So it all becomes a bit of a, a soup by the sounds of it. It all kind of, yeah. oh, right. And necessarily and, a circle. And those stuff out, right? Disambiguating that whole mess. That's part of what we get paid to do, right? Yeah, and that's part, yeah. of, that's part of the fun, I think, of clinical practice is that it's not, people don't come in and we don't lay out, a, you know, the algorithm and say, where are you now? Okay, here's your next step. Go do it. I mean, there's really a lot of engagement that happens with that. So sometimes the patient will talk to me about the problem that they're having in their, you know, in their back, knee, shoulder, neck, whatever. And they'll mention poor sleep. And I'll, and I'll ask a couple questions about sleep. And it's apparent to me that that's not going to be a useful thing to talk about. And then I kind of just pivot and talk about something else. Right. Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, the, the example you use, well, you know, my back wakes me up, but I'm a horrible sleeper anyway. Yeah. Well, you know, um, I'm actually, I've been able to help a lot of people with some, with some ways to sleep better. And that seems to help people's back pain. Is that something you'd like to talk about today? And sometimes that's, a, that's a door that opens that can lead you to something positive. And sometimes that's, ah, oh, no, I'm always a bad sleeper. I just need to get this disc sorted out. I'm like, oh, okay, well, maybe we'll pivot to something else then. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So all those, all those opportunities are in play and I want to help people understand as things come out during the history and, and, and during the time that you talk to your patient, I want to give people more avenues to pursue and more clear tools to use when they're going down those so that they can do have a more comprehensive approach for their patients. Yeah, that did lead on to one of the one of the questions that I was going to ask. So a lot of the a lot of patients, um, if you ask, if, is their pain waking waking you up? That then rolls into how well they're sleeping in general. But but as you've as you've described, some people questioning about things like sleep and things like stress is met met with a bit of an eye roll, either because you you've lost them and they don't really know what what you're getting at, or because you've lost them and they know exactly what you're getting at and they think you're possibly going to put their pain entirely down to stress. Um, and also with the gap with our patients in in their head, sometimes there is a big gap between the bio and the psychosocial. Um, yeah. Do you have any tips on sub subjective questioning on that, or is it a matter of, as you say of just picking up on when that's there's maybe a, um, a, a difference in, in what they're thinking and what you're thinking and, and then possibly even just leaving the subject alone. 
Yeah, I, I would say I'm probably in the second camp. I think, you know, early on in my career, I was much more reliant on, I was very questionnaire driven. So people would come in and like, have you done your Oswestry? And, you know, have you done your, you know, Orbro? And then have you done this questionnaire? And that, let me, oh, let me look at your FABQ and let's see what the <laughs> ones are. And, and so I was kind of like, uh, I was pretty rigid about that. Right. And so I, I, I said, oh, aha, here, it's right here on this, on the, uh, um, on my little questionnaire. I know exactly what to do to help. And I've started to realize over time that, uh, and I think you probably have too, people who've been in the in the field for a while, that you know it, it's not quite that easy. So what I want to do is I want to focus on kind of engaging with the patient on, on especially on the first visit, and I want to look for opportunities that present themselves that seem like they're open doors from for the patient's perspective and get a sense of what they think the main problem is. And if they don't think sleep is the main problem uh, for them, uh, to use. Uh, um, to use Maitland's term, uh, I, I don't know that that's something I'm going down visit one or visit two. Sure. I think that once once I get a little credibility with somebody in terms of my ability to help coach and guide them in terms of my ability to give them things that are not, um, you know, making them obviously worse and things that are improving their what they came in for their chief complaint for, I have a little bit of credibility with them. And at that point, then we can talk about some of those other big picture things like sleep or stress. And then it doesn't sound, it doesn't look um, like I'm writing them off. It doesn't feel like I'm blaming them for their problems, all those other things. Yeah. And you can often use uh, examples from your own life too. And I try to do that a lot uh, with people also. You know, yeah. I just, there, there are times. And so I was just, it's funny because you and I were just joking. Um, <laughs> it's morning for me. It's afternoon for you. Yep. But actually it took me, uh, it took me a little while to get going in the podcast today. Part of it is because this past week I've had just very poor sleep for one reason or another. And some people may say, well, wait, I thought you were the physical therapy sleep guy. Why, <laughs> why can't you sleep? And I said, well, you know, the thing is humans are tough, man. Uh, you know, sometimes you just don't get the sleep that you'd like. And during that time, it's good to have some tools uh, to, to, to find your way out of it. And so uh, this weekend, I was getting what's called recovery sleep. So it's a planned block of a very large block of sleep designed to help sort of catch me up from sleep loss the, in the previous time period, right? Yeah. And so if you look about if you look about it with patients, this is that's an ideal kind of a thing to talk about. So you know, uh, there's a lot of different things that can contribute to to pain and problems. And um, a big piece of what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to find all the pieces in the puzzle that you've got that can help you. And we've already found one or two things that seem to really be helping. Mm. Sometimes it's important to look around for some other things that we can try to see if there's uh, some other items that we can find to help improve what's going on and see if we can't move forward together. And so one of the things you've told me is that you've said that like your, your back wakes you up at night and you've had some trouble sleeping. You know, sleep is pretty important and sleep can affect how our body processes pain. And if you want to talk a little bit about sleep, we could do that. And, you know, I've been successful coaching people to sleep a little bit better and that has been able to help their back pain in the past. And if you want to talk about that, we could do that today. Yeah. What kind of and things? And so that's a good example of like a transition, right? Sure. And what kind of things does the evidence, you know, if we had a patient in front of us and we said there's some research on, on pain and sleep, what kind of things can we say the evidence has shown and good evidence has shown X, Y and Z benefits could be could be had? What kind of things can we describe? Yeah, great. Uh, so I would say so adults need seven to nine hours of sleep a night. Right. And very few people uh, are getting that. Right. And so different groups such as like the National Sleep Foundation over here in the States and, and their group, their scientific um, groups, other places in other countries. It's funny. So like you look at let's just talk exercise for a second. Mm -hmm. So if you look at the American College of Sports Medicine or the Health and Human Services over here in the States and you look at what their exercise guidelines for adults are and you lay that on top of the UK's and Australia's and, you know, Sweden's. Uh, 
surprisingly, everybody kind of agrees on the science right. and they all look about the same, right? So if you talk about sleep, if you talk about healthy sleep habits or sleep behaviors, these things are remarkably consistent across different groups. So when it comes to sleep habits, we've got a kind of a top 10 healthy sleep habits that I walk people through. Number one is you want to sleep in a dark, quiet, and cool room. So changing the environment in which you sleep is um, pretty important, right? Just as changing your environment uh, at work, uh, if you've got like a shoulder, neck, or an arm or, or elbow problem, looking at ergonomics, how they how they how they sit and how they move and the things that tasks they do at work, that's probably pretty valuable, right? Same thing here. This is just the environment in which people sleep. So number one, sleep in a dark, quiet, and cool room. Uh, number two is to go device free. So limit your screen time uh, one hour before bed. We can talk a little bit about how looking at, at electronic devices and having all that light come into your brain and through your eyes. It helps engage parts of your brain that keep you awake and, and keep you uh, keep you engaged with that content. And so we want to maybe try to eliminate those in the hour before bed. That's number two. Um, number three is use your bedroom for sleep only. And I've got like a little asterisk by sleep only. Uh, obviously, there's some other things we do in bed that we don't have to talk about right now. But we understand that there are some other things that go on in the bedroom too, right? Yep. Enough said. So number four uh, is to nap wisely. So use naps carefully. Don't be afraid of naps and uh, make sure that they're not so close to the time that you're going to go to sleep that they might uh, interfere with your sleep metabolism. I think number some, five, some people are afraid of naps. I think that there is the, the oh, sometimes yeah. that thought of, well, don't sleep too much in the day because you'll you'll not sleep at night. Yeah, it's like, you know, don't have something to eat now. You'll spoil your dinner, right? <laughs> yeah. It's the same kind of concept, right? So I think there's a couple things we, we face. We face some, um, some there's fear of napping. And um, there's a lot of controversy, um, you know, in the late in the lay concepts about caffeine. So you've got people who are caffeine shamers uh, who are like, oh, you can't use caffeine. Caffeine's horrible. You should only sleep. And then you've got people who just take in way too much caffeine and it is a serious part of their sleep problem, right? Mm. Um, so naps are like some of the listeners as well as as our patients. Yeah. I wonder the physio community. Yeah, we can definitely talk about um, caffeine because there's nothing wrong. There is nothing wrong with regular moderate caffeine consumption, and in fact, it can be very useful in managing sleep. So, uh, but also naps also can. So that's what that's what number four is. This nap wisely. And we can talk a little bit about how to coach people for taking naps to help improve their their overall um, cognitive uh, alertness and and manage their sleep debt. Number five is get out of bed if you can't sleep. If you're laying in bed and you can't sleep and it's been 20 minutes or so, you probably got to get up out of bed and do something else. Because just laying there with the covers on, like, I can't sleep. What sure. are we doing now? Uh, that's not the best, right? Number six is you want to maintain a consistent and regular bedtime. You want to tend to go to sleep about the same time during during the night. Uh, don't go to bed hungry. Number seven, uh, make sure that you you know you have a little food in your stomach at least a little bit. Obviously, not a huge meal, right? Uh, just like swimming, you don't want to eat a whole big meal an hour mm. before you get in the water or into bed. And you want to make sure that uh, you know, your body can be comfortable and ready for sleep. You want to not make sure that you any exercise that you do is done about you know three hours before. Uh, you want to make sure you're limiting your alcohol or nicotine between three and six hours before bed. And this is of all the things that I do, this is probably one of the things I don't do that well. Sometimes I come home at night and I want to, and I have a glass of wine, and that's within the three to six hours of bedtime. So maybe I should, you know, you know I could have a glass of wine at work. I don't think my boss would like that. No, they tend not to. They tend yeah, not no, to. Yeah, no, he's really inflexible about yep. that. It's crazy. <laughs> um, 
And the, and the last is you want to you want to limit your caffeine intake. You don't want to have any caffeine within six hours before bedtime because that's a, six hours is the, is the metabolic time for caffeine generally for most people most of the time. So those are kind of the top ten sleep mm. habits. And depending on the person, they might do one of those things really well and one of those things really poorly. So we don't want to do all ten of those things at once. Right. You want to talk to your patient a little bit about what their sleep habits are, and then figure out okay, where's the low hanging fruit. Where's the sleep habit that most could benefit from a change, right? And then you can kind of start there in terms of, of coaching. True. And behavior change, I think, sums it up. We are, we, are, we are in the business of behavior change, and often we think of it as just being activity, potentially yeah. maybe some nutrition change. But um, there is this whole, as you say, one third of our lifetime where sleep is a behavior and, and we're not having much input at all really at the minute as, as healthcare professionals but is that something that you would like to see obviously would like to see uh, change or, absolutely, or see absolutely. I think the, one of the stories I tell early on in my in my presentation I think you nailed it was we're in the business of behavior change I could not agree more mm-hmm. I, I thought for a long time my job was the evaluation and treatment of musculoskeletal problems from a non-surgical rehabilitation perspective that's actually not my job uh, as you stated so well my business is behavior change and so that the degree to which I'm successful is entirely dependent on how I can help people change their behavior. Because if I can't help people change their behavior, I am not much good. And that we really need to get people in healthcare generally and people in physical therapy, physiotherapy specifically, to turn that corner mentally and get in the idea that, look, my whole point here is to help this person change. How can I help this person change? Right. And that might be uh, activity. It might be exercise. I mean, I might need to make them help them change to um, to, to integrate this new exercise that's going to help their chronic musculoskeletal issue. Or it might be cha- make a change on the nutrition side or make a change on the sleep side. And all of these are or on the stress side. All of these are are important parts of people's overall health and their function and their success and behavior change and function. That's what we do in PT. Yeah. Fair enough. And then just think about the evidence again, though, with the with with benefits to to pain. Do they do they look at quantity of sleep or quality of sleep? Potentially both. I suppose they're in sleep labs. They they have that that luxury. Um, and which would you say is most important for a for a patient with persistent pain? Yeah, I I, I would say that um, in the absence of uh, sleep lab data on an individual person. Um, talking too much about sleep quality may not be um, may not be a um, a valuable thing to do, mm-hmm. right? So if I know someone's sleeping seven hours, and I know someone's sleeping four hours, say worrying about the quality side to side there may not be so valuable. If people are getting spending a lot of time in bed and reporting that they are getting a lot of sleep, but not being rest but not being rested and not feeling rested. That is probably the strongest indicator for me that sleep quality is a problem. And I would say, especially in adults, the first thing that we should think about is sleep apnea Mm. and whether or not we want to engage uh, somebody on the primary care team, um, you know, general practice physician, nurse practitioner, PA, whoever is Mm. managing the primary care for that person to consider whether or not sleep apnea is a, is a factor. And there's some, there's a questionnaire or two out there about sleep apnea. There's some questions you can ask about sleep apnea to help, to help, um, 
be a good member of the healthcare team and pass information back and forth, right? Uh, but so in terms of sleep quality, I, I would think that the only real measure we have for that clinically, practically speaking, is a sense of the patient feeling rested and restored with sleep. And so for me, the overall sleep behaviors as people's quality quantity improves, the quality tends to do too. If you're not sleeping well and you change and you make your room darker and cooler and quieter, chances are very good you'll sleep more and chances are good you'll sleep better quality-wise too. So I, I think that our, from our perspective in PT, I, I don't want to split those two things out, quality and quantity, as, to, as, as distinct constructs. I think it's all related in terms of the overall sleep behaviors. Yeah. And are there any markers that, that someone might say or somebody might, might present with objectively that, that make, makes the alarm go off in your head of thinking, I need to talk to this person about sleep in particular? Yeah, I would say... Um, so first of all, I think anybody who's got uh, a chronic pain problem of any kind, that probably needs to be on your mind at some point. Mm. People who um, seem tired, uh, people who yawn, there's actually a, um, a physical therapy sleep questionnaire that you can use. One of the, I, I talked to you before about how I was real questionnaire driven early in my career, right? But I heard something from uh, Dr. Sandy Hilton who really kind of helped me with this a little bit. And she talked about, look, she said, it's not about a question of using or not using a questionnaire. It's not a question about scoring it or not scoring it. If you give it once and you've got elements on that questionnaire that the patient scores is kind of not good and other areas where they score them as areas that are pretty good, you don't need to use that from a questionnaire perspective. You can pull that question out and say, okay, that's a concept that I need to look at, right? right? So if your sleep questionnaire says I often wake up and I don't feel rested, you don't have to say, okay, I just need to use that for the purpose of scoring the questionnaire and then I'll give them the questionnaire later and see if it improves. No, you can pull that out and say, you know, you, you told me that you, you often don't feel rested when you sleep or you told me that you often wake up during the night with, you know, with pain in your knee or your back or whatever. And, and maybe that's something we can talk about too. Uh, I would say that, um, it's rarely the first people don't come to us with pain because they want to sleep better. So trying yeah. to force that or shoehorn that into the first couple of visits is not likely to be successful. Now, if you spent some time in the in the pain education or explain pain world, I think you've already noticed that. People, yeah. When you, people come to see you, they don't want to hear you say, well, actually, let me tell you all about how pain works. It's all about misconception. Like, you know, people don't want to hear that, right? Yeah. <laughs> Straight off the yeah, are we going to get that? Yeah, yeah, uh, guilty. I was, I, I was guilty. Of that myself. <laughs> well, I think we all have been. <laughs> yes, no kidding, right? It's not some of my finer, finest hours, that's yeah. for sure. Uh, but, you know, so it's one of those things that you can weave in a little bit later. It's not something people come mm -hmm. to you immediately for, but it's an opportunity that you see during the time that you talk to a patient and help engage them. Because you're also talking about all these other factors all the time. One of the things I want to help people understand is that they're already doing this with their patients. They're already talking to their patients about all the different things that might affect how they feel, all the different things that might affect what their function is and how to improve their function and improve the way that they feel on a daily basis. They're doing this all the time, right? The hour, the, whether you take the stairs or not, uh, like lifting, you know, form can be relevant for some people, mm -hmm. like how much you move during the day, ergonomics of what it is that you're trying to do. PTs are doing this stuff all the time. Yeah. Just want you to do this for sleep too. Yeah. 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 It's, it's not this idea that you're in clinic and you're talking to somebody and you're like, Oh, excuse me, attention, everyone. I'm now going to talk about sleep. No, I, I don't know what it's not like yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a natural lifestyle. Part. Yeah, it's a natural part of the the overall management we do for for patients that we're already doing on so many areas. I just want to add sleep as an as an area that we can also uh, think about for people. Is there any data about the the 
I suppose the so the risk factors of of say low back pain we know can be fear and catastrophizing mm. and things like that. Yeah. Do we know where where sleep fits into that at all? Oh yeah, yeah? oh yeah. It, poor sleep and 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 self, poor self reported sleep and insomnia are highly correlated right. with with back pain especially, but a, a wide variety of different pain problems including neck and shoulder and knee too. And so the citations that I have in my handout for you that I think you'll be able to see in the show notes mm. kind of talk about those things. And if you pull some of those papers, many of which are free full text, you'll start to get a sense of how that how that connects. So in pain cloud, one of the things I did is I took like this map of the United States that was like a sort of like a heat map of different kinds of health problems. Mm. So the first one I think was like um, high blood pressure. So places in the states by county that had higher rates of blood pressure were darker colored and places that had lower rates were lighter colored, right? So you can see where the focus of the problem is geographically, sure. right? So there was that map that was there. And then I put the map for heart disease. Gosh, it looks a lot similar mm. to the high blood pressure one. Then I put the one up for stroke. Mm, gosh, also look the same. Mm. And then I put the one up for self-reported sleep disturbance, and it looks almost the same. Right. So these problems come together, and they come in clusters, right? And so worrying too much about chicken versus egg or what causes what, I mean, that that might be interesting and relevant from a big-picture research perspective, but for your average clinician who's sitting in, in a room and a patient comes in to see them, what causes what is completely irrelevant. The only question is, what options do I have to help this person change? Yeah. What options do can we explore together to improve these things? Because they tend to come in clusters, and, and as one thing improves, other things improve as well. Sure, and no doubt improving their, um, even if you improve their, their cardiovascular I don't want to say symptoms, but their their cardiovascular presentation. There's going to be mm. benefits for that in terms of lifestyle and pain and things like that. So yeah. I suppose there's yeah yeah. I mean, gains. does does regular exercise influence somebody's risk profile for cardiovascular disease? Oh, you bet it does. Mm. Does improving someone's sleep habits, the, the quality and quantity of their sleep, does that improve their their cardiovascular risk profile? Oh, you bet it does. Yeah. All these things are all these things are kind of related, right? Yeah, and so we need to we need to think about when patients come in that there that there is this big puzzle there that we get to assemble, right? And that's part of the I think what's so interesting about clinical practice is that it's not up to us to to search through the puzzle pieces and find the ones that we like best, right? Because there's a fair number of people who still do that. They want to try to force every patient into their personal paradigm, right? Yeah. You know, you know, I really like manual therapy, so I'm going to be stretching everybody or doing this to everybody, or I'm going to be poking everybody with a needle or scraping them with a metal bar. Apparently, <laughs> there are people who do that. I don't know. Um, so we can't do that. We have to look through there and find the puzzle pieces that the patient gives us first. We have to start from where they are, not from where we are. It's got to be a patient-driven process, not a clinician-driven process. And that's part of what makes it fun. It's almost like a ride. Like you don't know where the ride's going, yeah. but you're there with the patient taking the ride together, yeah. and you're trying to give them the best advice you can each time the next turn comes around to get them to the bottom safely. Sure. And that's really a big piece. Sleep can be a huge part of that uh, of that process. Sleep can, coaching people for better sleep habits can be a huge part of that uh, success for people. Certainly, yeah. It sounds like one of the things that could pop up on the, on the ghost train. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. I've wondered as well, we talk, we've obviously talked a lot about the benefits of sleep. These are the sort of things we can give advice to people. Are we at risk of keeping people up at night over this? Do you, do you think people lose sleep over their lost sleep? Yeah. Well, I would say um, it, it probably depends on the way in which we bring it up, mm. right? So um, 
does helping people understand that they need to be more active, does it give them a sense of shame and make them less active? Well, it might, but I think it depends on the positive way in which we bring that up. And for me, that's where the coaching piece comes into that. So a lot of times clinicians will look at this, at this data about sleep and they'll look at like the 10 sleep habits and they're thinking, man, there is no way I'm going to be able to do all that with my patients. I would say, hang on, I didn't say you had to do all that. Sure. Let, let's start, let's start small. Let's start small with something that people can do today to help improve their sleep habits. Some people call it sleep hygiene. We don't want to use the term sleep hygiene. There's nothing dirty about sleep. I remember right? that from Pay Cloud, yeah. So, yeah. Exactly. So the question is, instead of worrying about what happens in, in an outcome for something, let's talk about the process. Let's talk about a process that we can help people with that will help move them forward that isn't, isn't a scorecard and isn't something that will make them feel bad that they didn't achieve it. So I like to talk to people about setting goals that are process goals instead of outcome goals. Yeah. So let me give you an example from exercise. So an, uh, an, an exercise outcome goal uh, would be, you know, can you lift, you know, on your, so you've got knee arthritis, can you do a straight leg raise with a five pound weight at least 10 times without losing your full knee extension, right? And then maybe the patient can do that, maybe they can't do that, maybe they can't do that, you know, maybe they get a little disillusioned sometimes. I don't know. Maybe that that's a piece of the puzzle there. So that's an outcome goal. I want to help people, especially when it comes to sleep, start with process goals. So I'm not necessarily going to worry too much about how many hours the person slept two weeks after I started coaching them. But if, but if not getting enough sleep is a problem for them, I'm going to pick a process goal that helps them. So whether they did their part is the key thing. So in this week, I want you to be in bed, lights off, before 9 p.m., at least three nights. But what if I don't sleep well? I'm not worried about that. You can't control that right now. Let's just start small with something that you have control over, and you can have control over when you get in bed and when you turn the light out. And if you do that well at least three times for the next two weeks, let's set that as a goal. Now, that's a process goal, not an outcome goal. And that's something that patients often feel they have more personal control over, mm -hmm. and it actually gets at what we're really talking about. Because when it comes to behavior change, we're talking about behaviors and we're talking about habits. I'm not worried about outcomes. I'm worried about habits. I'm worried about processes. I mean, if the, if, if the patient is, he's got a nice, cool, dark, quiet room, if they're in bed seven to nine hours before they need to wake up, if they've limited their caffeine to, you know, not within six hours of their of their rest time, if they're doing all of those things, on a regular basis, I'm very confident whatever outcome we're talking about will improve. And I don't need to chase that little outcome. I don't need to chase the restfulness or the, or the you know, cognitive wakefulness or the you know, memory and recall. I don't need to chase all those things if I can focus on behaviors. Yeah. Behaviors are what people can most control, and that's what we're supposed to most help them with when it comes to behavior change. Mm. And it sounds like it's, it's more about giving them the tools and empowering someone. You're right. Somebody could say, right, all this week, yeah, I did have those three days where I was in bed by 9 p.m. Um, and that's a huge improvement. From the yeah. 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 So we're going to build on that. Great job. But I didn't feel rested. It's okay. The most important thing is slowly changing habits. Yeah. And you were doing that. And that's awesome. Very proud of you. Let's talk about the next step, right? Okay. So then it, it can become a lot more positive for people. It's, it's often disillusioning when people start something new if they don't get some sense of early progress, if yeah. they don't get some, some sort of early win. Yeah. And it's hard to get an early win when you're focused on outcome. Oh, man, look, your Oswestry is still 38%. Oh, my gosh, what are we doing wrong? Yeah, uh, yeah. That's not a recipe for success. So we're going to help people change, right? Yeah. 
Now, if their oswestry is 38% and they're, off, they're also subjectively better on a number of things, how many people has that happened to, right? I, I have that happen all the time, right? Yeah. Their subjective outcome study, uh, outcome, their subjective outcome, um, um, you know, survey that they fill out is not that much better, uh, sort of that way. But they're telling me and communicating to me that they're way better in some other areas. And so I, I think that we could benefit from focusing a little bit more on, on that piece. Yeah. And, and as you say, on sleep as a behavior, not a, a thing that we need to keep kind of clutching at. It's, it's, a, it's a prolonged yep. thing. It's a, it's a behavior more than anything. Yeah. I mean, for me, so like I have a really busy job and kind of mm. hospital administration. And um, so I work over 60 hours a week, because I'm sure many of the people listening to this podcast, you, you work just as hard or harder than I do. And so you know how hard it is to fit something like fitness in there. Yeah. And so for the long, longest time, I was really focused on, you know, how much weight I could lift or how fast my runtime was and all that stuff. And I, I have found a lot of freedom and a healthier approach to fitting exercise into life to just, my goal is to get to the gym three times a week. Mm. And to get a good 45 to 60 minute workout in. And yeah. if I do those things, I'm confident that good things will happen for me, you know, cardiovascular fitness and strength and all those other things. But I, I can't get wrapped up into the details of exactly how much did I put on the bar, exactly mm. what was my time this time. You know, I can't I can't wrap up my head in those. I just don't have the cognitive bandwidth for those things given the current job I'm in. And if you're listening, this, you know, many people might feel, feel hear themselves in this too, right? Yeah. It's busy as are right so i'm focused on the process of getting to the gym not necessarily the outcome now i don't just get there and you know lift a, a pink dumbbell three times and go home it's not <laughs> like that either right so i am i am putting some intensity in but for me it's the it's about focusing on the process for me the behavior of showing up to the gym three times a week you know you know showing up is, is 80 percent of the deal right yeah. it's the same thing for patients let's focus on a behavior that they can change right now today and move them toward better health by changing their behaviors, not worrying about the outcomes. True, true. Why do you think it's taken us this long as, as healthcare professionals to, to get to sleep and to get to its benefits? Yeah, no, that's a good question. I, I would say um, big picture number one is we just didn't have much data. Right. Uh, and I would say that number two, um, there are people who are going to be listed July 28th, end of July 2018 as we record this, but they're going to be people five years from now who listen to this podcast or who still are not engaged with sleep. So how long does it take for something new in medicine? How long does it take for a new finding to enter clinical practice? Anybody know? It's hard to make, it's hard to be uh, too, you know, too, too exact about this. It's but a some long of the time, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. It suggests about, it's about 17 years. Mm. Ouch. Right. Mm. So w when you ask the question, why is it taking us so long? I would say that, well, it's still taking us long because we haven't done that. I mean, there's there's some people who are doing that and there's some people who are not. Yeah. And so there have been a, a series of papers recently just uh, and they're spot on about the difference between the evidence for good treatment of low back pain and then what actually happens and what people are actually offered. Because surprise, surprise, they're generally not offered evidence based treatment. Right. Yeah. And it's the same for sleep. Right. So it's going to take a long, long time in clinical practice before talking about sleep is common and helping people sleep better and seeing the connections of sleep to the other health problems they're having mm. is common. Uh, it's not going to happen anytime soon. So if you're listening to this and you're worried about being behind, 
don't be. Yeah. You can pick this. You can pick this up right now. Start adding this into your clinical practice. Again, it's not something new and different. It's not crazy. It's not. It's not you know out of left field. This is all stuff that you're accustomed to doing all the time. You coach and and mentor patients about health behaviors all the time. We're just giving you some additional options in sleep and helping you work your way through that. And I think that it's it will be another you know 20 years before mm. that's common enough that you even hear that talked about in, in your average clinic yeah, and it may take longer before the average person uh you know as a healthcare provider does it with any kind of reliability or before the average patient expects to be talking about their sleep in a in a thank you yes yeah, absolutely yeah yeah, yeah. Um, and, and that's why we need to educate the you know we, we need to make sure that there's an education campaign in the lay press public. about this too it can't just yeah. be it can't just be uh um, I mean, there's nothing medical about sleep. Mm, mm. There's nothing medical about exercise. There's nothing medical about nutrition necessarily, right? Yeah. So we need to make sure that 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 the ideas and concepts about how to live a healthy life are common in our society, independent of whether somebody's in the clinic or not. Mm. If we wait till the time they're in the clinic to try to change some of those health behaviors, we are way behind the power curve. Mm, mm. And how evidence-based would you say, just to get an idea of it, how evidence-based would you say that sleep is for pain? Are we very early days in the evidence or is this gathering a, you know, a, a good foundation now? I would say we have a pretty strong foundation so far. I would say that the, the evidence is much stronger in terms of correlation between sleep and pain and correlation between sleep and, and various health problems. We have a, a lot of very strong evidence there. Where we're building our evidence slowly is in terms of um, – Interventions mm. in terms of inter intervening, how how reliably can we change someone's sleep habits? Yeah. When we change someone's sleep habits, exactly what effect does that have on the healthcare outcome of interest for us? Whether that's you know high blood pressure or you know asthma or chronic pain or you know or obesity or whatever you'd have. And so I would say that's where the evidence is emerging, for lack of a better term. We, so we we have solid we have solid early evidence in randomized trials that you can change people's sleep behaviors with coaching and that those sleep behaviors translate to improved clinical outcomes. I, w would I like to tell you that there's, you know, tons of trials for it and it's a, you know, it's a slam dunk. I would love to say that, but I can't say that. It turns out sleep science and, and sleep interventions in the clinic are going to be exactly like every other intervention we have in medicine. Mm -hmm. It's not going to be a new, brilliant, magic cure for everything, right? Just we thought maybe we thought exercise was that was that. Right. And as we look, is exercise important? Yeah. Is it is it key for people with chronic pain? You bet it is. Is it a magic cure for pain? Oh, no, it's not. Mm -hmm. Same thing with explained pain. Same thing with stress management. Same thing with you know pain education coaching. None of these things are magic cures. Yeah. They're yeah. all one piece of that puzzle. They all can have a positive effect on things. Um, but it depends on the person, how you apply it. It depends on the condition in which it can be more successful. There's just a lot of that uncertainty. And we need to get to the point where we are okay with that uncertainty. In clinical practice, we need to get to the part where we, we accept that when a patient comes in, I don't have any idea how representative this patient is compared to all the, the evidence that I already know about this problem and how I apply that with this particular patient. It's all going to come down to pay, connecting between the healthcare provider and the patient and engaging them on behavior change on a day-to-day -day basis. And I think that that's where it's going to end up.
Absolutely. It's not sleep is not different than anything else that we talk about in clinical practice. It's not different in terms of its uh, magic impact. It's not different in terms of um, its value to individual patients. It's not different in terms of its overall importance to a healthy lifestyle. All of those things are the same. This is all stuff that we should be very used to uh, talking about and very used to understanding and applying uh, in physical therapy. Yeah, absolutely. Just to highlight that, um, being getting comfortable with uncertainty. I think that's that's, that's exactly right. And I think as physios, often we we are sometimes brought up in our careers to, to project a confidence of yes, I know what's going on, and and sometimes we we hang our hat on things. But I think you're you're right. This is it's more useful to have a sense of vulnerability and, and openness, and we don't know it all. We don't have the magic yeah. answer, as you say, and none of these things will yeah. ever be the magic answer. No, no, I think, and, and so if we're looking for that, then I think that's our mistake. Mm. I think that what we can, what we can feel and what we should feel mentally, what our mental posture should be, our mental posture should be that, look, the difference between what I can, what I know and can help you do in PT and the, and what you're actually doing now is very large. I am very confident that I can help you a great deal. Now, how much I can help you on what aspects of things I can help you, maybe that's a little less certain. Mm. But I think people should be very confident as they approach sleep, like they should approach a lot of other things, they should be very confident that the difference between what the patient knows and what they know is large. Yeah. And in the ability of uh, that our people have in PT and in medicine generally to help change people positively can be very large also. And so mm. I think that we have every reason to be confident about approaching this the um, the the devil is in the details, so to speak, in terms of the individual patient engagement and coaching. And I think we just need to do a better job of being more deliberate and helping our uh, our folks in physical therapy be more comfortable with the coach and mentor role. Yeah. I, I mean, it's, uh, somebody talked about uh, a buddy of mine. I remember uh, I'm trying to remember. I can't remember who it was that said this. I saw it in their social media. It's you know most people in medicine they want to be uh, Batman. <laughs> we we really should be focusing on being Alfred. Right. We're, we're yeah. Hero of the story. We're the why. You know, we don't want to be Luke Skywalker. We want to be Yoda, right? Right. So we want to be the wise guide and coach. And we're not the heroes here. We want to build this, build a story in which the patient is the hero, and we're just that sort of, uh, you know, wise guide on the side, so to speak. Yeah, that's a really useful message. Uh, what I wanted to ask about as well is, um, I know that quality of sleep generally deteriorates with age. Is there any specific advice we can give to, to elderly people, elderly patients with regards to, to their sleep? Well, I think the most important thing when we talk about age is we, we, we need to talk about the fact that sleep needs vary by age group. Mm. So your average adult needs, you know, seven to nine hours of sleep. But um, people who are older tend to need less sleep, but people who are younger need more. So you've got people who are school-aged children. They should be beginning between nine and 11 hours of sleep a night. So they should not sleep like adults. Yeah. Right. I have I have uh, uh, I have memories of my mother during the weekend coming in and waking us all up in the morning to get us going on our weekend chores and mm. stuff. And you know, looking back, I mean, that that probably is not the right thing to do. L letting children in that age group sleep that's that's definitely something that we should be doing. So mm. older adults need you know seven to eight hours of sleep. You know. Um, you know, adults and sort of in the prime of their life, so to speak, or more middle age, need seven to nine. There isn't a huge difference in terms of sleep uh, amount, sleep quality, or uh, the restfulness of their sleep can change based on health problems that they have, or some of those other things. But I would say the universality of um, of, of sleep habits and sleep behaviors uh, is true across the lifespan. 
similar to exercise, right? Sounds sound familiar, right? Mm-hmm. So sleep isn't different than exercise and that we need to tailor it to the individual person. Some of our patients who are elderly have um, different set of challenges that they face. Some of them are facing the exact same challenges that adults in their 50s are, are facing. Yeah. And therefore, they should be doing exactly the same things. So it, uh, it, it, really does, it really does vary that way. But it is important to message that the sleep that we need varies strongly based on their age group. And younger people need more sleep. I mean, newborns need 14, 17 hours mm. of sleep, right? You know, toddlers, 11 to 14. I mean, these are, there's large differences in terms of sleep need. Uh, especially for younger people. And so some school districts in the States, and I think this might be true in other countries as well, have started to shift their start time because the start time for school is pretty early. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so that that is not healthy for a child's uh, development if it limits their sleep quality and that limits the total time they're in the, they're in bed. So pushing that, that period back a little bit is helpful because children who are younger children, they have a they have a different sleep cycle than adults do. They're awake at different times, right? Yeah. They tend to be awake later, but they tend to need to sleep later in the morning too. Got yeah. Um, and, and likewise as well, a, a patient group that we don't often talk about in the, the Physio Matters podcast, but inpatients and, and wards and hospitals and, and kind of the, the sleeping in that area. Have you had yeah. any, any experience in dealing with inpatients or, or delivering oh, education yeah. within that setting? Um, yeah. Have you got any advice for our colleagues on the wards? Uh, I sure do. What, what I'd like them to do is, is um, not to change anything radically, but just let's start looking at the evidence. Let's start looking at the evidence for sleep quality in an inpatient environment. Um, th- there's a there's a quite a bit of evidence about how ICU stays uh, are major stressors in people's lives. So what, independent of whatever medical issue brought them there, whether it was yeah. trauma or serious illness or whatever else, but it being in that environment, you know, the constant noise of the machines, the light, the activity, how disruptive that is for sleep. I mean, there's a lot of data about how people have post-traumatic stress from their ICU stays, right? Mm-hmm. And so uh, at our, at my hospital, which is a military hospital, a big part of what, what we have our nursing and provider teams do is engage ways to help patients get better sleep. So changing the lights, uh, changing like how often we come in to wake them up for vital sign checks or whatever. You know how we can change the um, you know the the alarms on on the various machines that are in the ICU to re- to to reduce the amount of um, sound that they're they're receiving all the time and reduce the amount of time that they're that they're awake. Um, it also has interesting connections to healthcare, right? So in the critical care setting, there's a there's a lot made and discussed about alarm fatigue, mm-hmm. about how uh, provider and nursing teams hear so many different alarms all the time that it's hard to disambiguate an alarm that's just, hey, the battery's running out on the IV pump yeah. versus, uh, hey, this patient's about to flatline, right? Yeah. So, so um, the efforts that we make in terms of sleep quality there translate into better care quality uh, in other ways, but but sleep is especially important when people are, are ill. Mm-hmm. And I hope people who are working in an inpatient setting spend some time pulling some of the evidence for that and the evidence of how improving that sleep environment for patients can uh, can improve their, their stay in the hospital uh, and improve their overall clinical course. Fair enough. Have you as a, as a physical therapist been involved in that? I'm sure a lot of physios listening will, will say, well, it's great, but I, I, I'm not there at you know, in the, in the nighttime, um, mm. what sort of influence could, could they have? Yeah, well, um, I guess I can't speak for other folks, but just for myself, but I'll mm. say, um, so at the large hospital that I, that I worked at when, when I, I'm in administration now, but when I was in, uh, when I was the head of physical therapy at the large hospital that I work at, um, I had a, I had an inpatient 
group and I had an outpatient group. And just because I come from the outpatient world doesn't mean that I don't think inpatient care is important. I mean, I do. I, I made an effort to really prioritize that. I talk with our inpatient crew about what the things that we can do to change that. And they were part of the, the, uh, the process to help get that changed. And so if you're working in a hospital during the day and you're not on the night shift, you don't need to be on the night shift in order to talk to the nursing staff, talk to the provider staff, talk to the patients about ways to improve sleep, yeah. talk to the patient, hey, you know, you know, you're here in the hospital for, you know, this kind of problem and, you know, we're helping you get up and stand a little bit and walk a little bit better and get be more functional because there's tons of great evidence for early physical therapy and early activity and mobilization for the hospitalized patient, which probably is another podcast. <laughs> uh, but, but, uh, Hey, while, while you're in there with the patient, you're talking to them, Hey, um, how's the food? How, how are you sleeping? Are you getting enough sleep? Just, just big picture things like that. Oh, I really can't sleep. Really? How come? What's going on? Well, you know, I, the, the nurses are coming in and you know, get my vital signs all the time. And there's this thing over here that's beep, beep, beeping. Oh, okay, well, I mean, maybe I can engage a little bit with that. Maybe you can go out and talk to the charge nurse and say, hey, you know, is it, what's the schedule like for their vitals? Or, you know, this, this machine making noise, keeping them up at night. Is there anything we can do to, mm -hmm. you know, so all those things, you know, on a peer-to-peer -peer basis you can use as well. I mean, just because it's not your job to be there at night doesn't mean that you shouldn't have some sense of responsibility or influence on the care that happens in your hospital or clinic. Sure, and with your patient. And as you say, this is more than just a conversation topic of, oh, how did you sleep last night, Mrs. Jones? This is yep. this is something that if we can improve it, may have an impact on their their pain. Would you say their function as well? Uh, yeah, well I think that there's there's strong uh, there's some strong connections from an epidemiological correlation mm. spot there. I mean I think some a lot of the early interventional studies in sleep have been, you know, really kind of hyper focused on the outcome of interest, whether that's pain or, you know, uh, blood pressure or anything else, right? And so there, there's certainly low-hanging fruit in the mm -hmm. sleep world generally to kind of expand that focus when it comes to interventional trials to try to improve a, a, a lot of different a lot of different uh, endpoints. Yep, yep. And so going back to the outpatient setting, um, the, on, on more familiar territory, um, you, if you've got a, if we've got a physio in front of us who is already pushed for time within, let's say, an NHS 20-minute slot follow-up of someone with yeah. consistent pain, and they're, they're thinking, yeah, sleep could be a really useful thing to, to focus on with this patient. They've maybe done a bit of the groundwork. What would be your, your kind of top advice for the pri what they should prioritise within, within that, um, within that a session? Uh, that's a good question. So, you know, it's funny, this, this kind of time, the time crush is, uh, is ever present, right. For all of us, uh, you know, um, so tw 20 minutes in the NHS, is that like all, all across the country? I, uh, that's a good question. Um, certainly within mm. the, the areas I work in, it's, Okay. Um, 20 minute follow-ups. We think we're certainly all constrained with time, and no, nobody has plenty of time, regardless of the country you're in or the system you're in or whatever. And nobody's got all the time that they need, you know, with their patient or all the time that they would like to have. And so, uh, when I talk to patient to uh, clinicians about like some motivational interviewing concepts, some people say, you know, I I don't have time to talk to people like that. I don't have I I have a limited amount of time. I got to ask my questions, and they need to tell me what's going on, and I need to tell them what to do, and. I don't have time for all those those questions, those open-ended questions, and the all. And I say, look, you know, here, here's my thing. I don't have time to not do that. Mm -hmm. I don't have time to not engage a patient and let them tell me what their main issue is. I don't have time to guess. I don't have time to pull my personal toolbox out and make every patient the kind of patient that I would like them to be. I, I don't have time for that. I have a limited amount of time. I've got to spend it wisely and I've got to engage with my patient and let them tell me what the main issues are. Mm -hmm. So I would say for most people, if you're feeling crunched on time and you're thinking, how can I add sleep to this? My best advice is don't pull it out early. Pull it out a couple of sessions in 
and look for opportunities. Look for look for people who express frustration at their restfulness at night. Look for people who um, appear tired. Look for people who are verbalizing that their that their pain or their issue is giving them a problem with sleep. That is that's your early indication that talking to them a little bit about sleep might be helpful. And think about those ten sleep habits. Mm-hmm. Think about starting small with something the patient can control, like what the temperature of the room is, how dark the room is, the kind of light that's in the room, blue versus red. We didn't get into that, but we can get into that another time. Um, that's important. That's something that you can start with a patient today to help improve. And so that, so when you're limited for time, the first thing that you should think about when it comes to sleep is you don't have to get it all in on the first session or two. Maybe that's a, an issue for a couple of sessions in, and it's also an issue that you want to make sure that, that you feel from the patient, that there's some indication from the patient that that's something that you should pay attention to. And, and then when there is, find, find a behavior that's key and key in on a behavior. And if you're happy with with this, we can put the the ten tips on the on the show notes. If that's oh, on the Google yeah. Drive, yeah, yeah. No, they, those ten tips are everywhere. They were they were right. taken right from uh, large sleep societies and large medical societies, so they're very common. Cool. So we'd love to see them there. And it sounds like you'd probably recommend going through what a patient could do within those ten ten things, rather than yeah, here's a handout. Off you go. Here's some information yep. about sleep. Yeah, not, not helpful. Yeah. So do I give my hand out? Yes, because it's nice for them to have something to look at later. But I want to I want to help them. I want to figure out for them what they what they're most interested in. So sometimes I'll sit down with the 10 sleep habits and say, look, here's some things that that we can do to sleep better. Is there one of those that you had a question about? Or you have any concerns about any of those? And oftentimes that's the time. Look, look here. There's no way I could do this, doc. Mm-hmm. I'm like, oh, OK, no problem. Well, hey, you know, it says, you know, number four there it talks about caffeine and it talks about the caffeine intake. You know, maybe that's a place to start. I mean, you want to talk a little bit about caffeine intake because that can really affect sleep. Well, yeah, I, I drink coffee. Oh, really? So, how many, how much coffee do you drink? When do you drink it? You know, it might be good. It's if you're drinking caffeine within six hours, that might be a piece of the puzzle. And maybe that's a good place to start. Mm-hmm. So, for me, when I when I'm going through my day because I get tired in the in the early afternoon like everybody else, my caffeine window closes at four p.m. Right. Because I need to be asleep by ten. So I don't have caffeine after four. Like I, like it does not happen. Yeah. I don't have a soda. I don't have tea. I don't have coffee. I have no caffeine after four. It's funny. That one little thing changed my sleep quality more than anything mm-hmm. else. Changed my ability to sleep better more than anything else. I, I got to this, this performance triad program where we were teaching this stuff. And as you, as you look at this science, you're like, oh boy, I'm not doing some of these things very well myself. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah change a lot too. yeah i was gonna say there'll be colleagues of mine whose hearts are breaking at the thought of not having a coffee after 4 p.m <laughs> oh, i know i thought but yeah but, but that's only one of those that's only one yeah. of the 10 yeah if that's not doesn't seem reasonable or, or possible to that patient no problem skip it let's work on something else yeah. right yeah. we don't have to do all 10 perfectly every day yeah. forever and i mean it, it doesn't have to be that extreme so i looked at that and so I remember, uh, I remember looking at this you know, kind of at this stuff and talking to my wife about it. And she, she was like, she, she said, you know, there's a lot of this stuff that you don't do that well either. <laughs> she, she said, you know, maybe you ought to try some of these things. I'm like, yeah, I probably should. And so, you know, we t- looked at a couple of, you know, tweak this, tweak that. But the thing that helped me the most was stopping caffeine mm-hmm. before six hours before I got to bed. I was shocked at the improvement that had on my sleep. And that was just me. For some people, it's going to be different, right? Yeah. But for me, I mean, that... That was one of those things that where I thought to myself, man, this stuff really works. Yeah. This science is not – it's not just published in paper. It, it's absolutely practically app- applicable to, to what we do and what our patients do every single day. And if we can find that factor for that patient that makes that difference, 
that has a huge impact on their overall health. True. Yep. No, that sounds brilliant. I think not only a, a great summation on sleep, but also on behaviour change and the the kind of the ways we can we can change that in clinic. Um, yeah. So thank you, thank you very much for your time, Jason. That's been brilliant. Um, is is there anywhere that you'd like to direct our listeners to for more information, either about yourself or how to get in touch yeah. with you or about sleep in general? Sure. So I think in, in reaching me, probably the best way to do that is uh, is at Twitter. And my handle is at Jason Silvernail, all one word. And the Twitter handle will be in the show notes, I'm sure. Yeah. Uh, when it comes to, to sleep, you could certainly start where a lot of people start. They can start with a, a literature search. But what might be helpful is to go to some of the uh, organizations, scientific and otherwise, that are out there that produce guidelines for people. So one of the biggest ones that's evidence-based over here in the States is the National Sleep Foundation. And so that's a great place to go first. So they've got they've got like a more scientifically uh, oriented website, and they've also got like a more media oriented website. They've got a whole bunch of different articles about different things. Flip through those. The ten sleep habits are there. Uh, there's there's articles about you know caffeine and alcohol and um, pain, stress. Uh, how to get better sleep when you're traveling. All those things. As you look through all those articles, you can start to see based on the patients that you see. My gosh, there might be some helpful articles I can direct people to here, mm-hmm. and that will help help build your skill set. I mean, I think you have to know the sleep science first of all, and then you have to be able to coach people for change. And I think for for most PTs and physios, I would hope that the second part, the coaching, I would hope that's a little bit they they kind of have that down. Right. Their issue is that we need to get them spun up on a little bit of sleep science so they can start to find that. And the National Sleep Foundation is a great place to start uh, to help understand big picture, you know, sleep cycles, sleep physiology, uh, how to coach people for better sleep behaviors, all that stuff. Brilliant. Excellent. So I think something for everyone um, in that podcast. That's fab. So thanks again, Jason. You're welcome. Thanks so much. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thanks for having me. You too. Thank you. It's such an interesting topic that I bet very few of us are aware enough about. I mean, it's something that hopefully there's a few people that ask that question and can give basic advice, but the huge importance of the topic and the importance of quality sleep and the act of being underslept and what that means for chronic diseases, chronic ailments, and potentially even chronic pain, although, of course, more work to be done in that space. Um, is really really interesting so really thanks a lot for, to Flick and for, to Jason for that episode I learned so much I hope you did too remember reform.physio forward slash conference for tickets to the conference in Manchester 5th and 6th of October um, please join us on Patreon uh, if you haven't already uh, we've got a few of you more increasingly doing that which is really nice just throwing us a few quid um, to help us keep keep chipping away at what we're doing and we're going to be increasing content soon we've got some really big announcements coming um, probably in a matter of weeks actually between these episodes if you keep an eye on social media you'll be hearing more from us and how we're going to be increasing content and, and that's going to then be a consistent thing which is really cool not just for patrons but for everyone because the patrons keep wanting us to produce open access content so they can persuade their friends and colleagues as well which is really cool of them so please do join us on Patreon and support us the Physio Matters podcast on Patreon on Facebook, on Instagram and of course at TPM Podcast on Twitter Today's interviewer, at Felicity Thau on Twitter. Um, I'm at Jack A. Chu. And of course, find us all, all across social media to support and feedback for this episode and beyond. Really appreciate your thoughts and any reviews you might throw us on iTunes is really helpful for our ratings. Now, I've just remembered this really cool um, 
review that we got on Patreon, uh, which was really nice. I've just, I think I'll read out to you because it warmed my heart when I came across it. I don't think it's even that recent. I just, I, it just clearly had passed me by. So let me read this out to you, see if this uh, inspires you to, to join us on there. So this is from a listener who said, I've been tuning into the podcast for over a year now and it's just about time I show my appreciation for all the work that you do. TPMP has been a wonderful resource. I respect the value, the foundational integrity and honesty one requires to discuss such topics of controversial nature as those that are provided, as those which are provided a platform by TPMP. Not to mention Jack Chew's philosophical tendencies make these discussions all the more interesting. A platform for open and critical discussion is crucial for advancing our efficacy as therapists. TPMP inspires us to challenge by ideas that do not seem to be rationally rooted. Lead the charge. Continue inspiring acceptance of challenge and change. That's from one of our new patrons. So thank you so much for that, whoever you are. And um, and also hope that inspires a few of you to maybe throw, throw us a few quid to keep doing what we're doing, if you do indeed appreciate it. So that's enough from me. I've, I've, I said at the start of the episode I wasn't talking a lot on it, but I still managed to shoot hold myself in, didn't I? Um, but I can hand over for to our today's guest, Jason Silvernail, for our cheesy sign-out, which I know is the highlight of all of your months. So I'll see you next month. If not before, do tune in on social media to get more updates from us and a few live streams to boot in the coming weeks. All right, take care. Bye-bye. You've been listening to the Physio Matters podcast, discussing physio matters because physio matters.